You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are glad that you're here. It's one o'clock. So one o'clock is back. This is my core team. So we are ready to do this. That means you guys are the most awake. You are the most caffeinated. You are the most excited. And you are the most ready. All right. Then we're ready to begin. Okay. So a couple of years ago, I surprised my daughter Mia. And if you don't know, my daughter Mia is 14. I surprised her with tickets to go see Taylor Swift in concert, which, by the way, those two tickets cost more than my first car, just as a FYI. And, uh, and, and by the way, if you ever want to feel old, I would encourage you to go to one of her shows uh, because I went to a stadium with 50,000 tweens, a bunch of moms, and like eight dads. And uh, in fact... There was a dad that was sitting in front of us who obviously this man had lost a bet of some type because he was miserable. He was miserable there. And so what he would do is like every three songs, he would leave, get two beers, and then come back, drink them both, still couldn't take it. Then he would leave, come back, get two more beers, drink them. The thing is, about an hour into the set, I mean, he was really into it. He was dancing. He's like, I got a blank space. You know, he was really going for it. And uh, so we were walking in, and it was at the, uh, what is it called now? Hard Rock Stadium, right? Is that it? Yeah. I still call it Joe Robbie Stadium. That's how old I am. So anyway, uh, but I tell Mia as we're walking up, and I say, hey, listen, um, I want to get you a T-shirt. She's so excited. Which, by the way, I should have found out what the prices of the T-shirts were before I made that promise, because apparently the people who priced this merchandise, they did their internship at Disney World, because these prices were completely out of touch with reality. I, I asked, I get to the, one of these stations where they have all the shirts, and I'm like, hey, how much is the sweatshirt? And they're like, oh, the sweatshirts are 175 And I'm like, do the sweatshirts come with Taylor inside? And... Um, Apparently, they've never purchased a sweatshirt anywhere. <laughs> like, have you people ever heard of a place called Old Navy? <laughs> it's a different, totally different pricing structure. Well, anyway, I get into line. It's a mob scene. I mean, there's like a couple hundred people in line to get something. And there's these two middle-aged women. And by the way, that's just what they were. Okay, don't email me. You go. I'm a middle-aged man. They were middle-aged women. I, am, I can identify. So anyway, that's what it is. We're moving on, okay? So there's these two middle-aged women there, and they're standing on the side, not in the line. About five minutes after uh, they get there, they start yelling at the merchandising people to serve them, and the person behind the counter says, you need to get in line. They're like, oh, we thought we were in the line. So they cut about, I don't know, 60, 70 people in line and get right in front of my daughter and I, and she turns and she goes, this isn't my fault. They didn't direct me. And I'm thinking, now we have bad blood. And... Um, <laughs> So the person behind the counter says next, and I say, hey, can I see this T-shirt? And this, these two ladies turn around and look at me as though I have committed some type of crime. And anyway, they order, I'm not even joking, it must have been like 20 T-shirts. They're calling people, call Amy. Amy, what size do you wear? Small or medium? Yes, I'll hold. And I mean, this is what's going on. And I'm like, 
You have got to be kidding me. Then after they got all their t-shirts, not one, not two, three different credit cards to actually pay for these items. And then they go to leave. The other lady that's with her realizes she forgot a shirt. She tries to cut back in the line. I go full Heisman on her and block her completely. And I'm like, oh no, we are never, ever getting back together. And I just order my stuff and go. Now, and by the way, an extra 10 points for those of you that got the references. We'll be tallying up the points and divvying out the prizes at the end of our program. So now here's why I tell you all of these things is because we love our kids. We would do anything for our kids because as parents, one of the things that we do is we just, our goal is to give our kids opportunities that we didn't have and see them succeed. But there's something that you learn pretty early in the parenting journey is that loving your kids isn't all about just doing fun stuff for them. There's guiding your kids and teaching your kids. And yes, sometimes even correcting your kids. And it goes, correcting your kids goes by many names, but I think we can all agree that it's somewhat of tough love. And tough love is when you've got to be firm with them to try to curb some bad behavior. And it is, it's painful as a parent because you know what it is as a parent that sometimes you don't see as a child is that you don't see the trajectory of where this decision goes. And what tough love does is say, look, you don't see it, but I do. And as much as it pains me to do it, we're going to try to curb this behavior so that you don't end up at the place where this decision is going to ultimately take you because I'll even risk being misunderstood by you so that you have a better future. Now, I tell you all of this because a few weeks ago at Calvary, we started a new series of teachings called A Beautiful Mess. And this is a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, if you're not aware, 1 Corinthians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians living in a city called Corinth. You're like, where in the world is Corinth? If you can imagine Greece, it's in southern Greece. And Paul plants this church. He spends a couple of years there. He leaves. And all of these problems start happening. There's a woman by the name of Chloe who's friends with the Apostle Paul who writes Paul a letter and says, hey, this church that you planted, things are out of control. And she was right. This church had all kinds of problems. They had division and infighting. When people were taking the bread and the wine for communion, there were people that were tipping it back a little bit and getting drunk during communion. File that under not cool. And so now they were suing each other. It was a total mess. So Paul writes them this very stern letter and talks to them and tells them that a divided world needs a united church. And part of being, the, the way that you become a united church is having the mind of Christ, what he talks about in chapter two of this book. And that when we talk about the mind of Christ, what is that? It's thinking the way Jesus thinks about things. It's knowing what God wants us to do and speaking in a way that's consistent with the character and nature of God. And one of the things that we talked about, if you were with us, not last week, Easter, but the week before that, is we talked about how we are able to judge between right and wrong inside the church. Like, right, we know what God has said, and so we know what's right, we know what's wrong. And there are tough moments. There are tough situations that arise with people, and we have to be able to discern what's right, what's wrong, so that we can help people, help each other make good and godly decisions. And this is really important, not just because of this week's message or last week's, but because of next week's message that Paul is going to challenge us with some really heavy topics. So I'm going to invite you all to be there and bring a helmet. And so now these topics 
are challenging and they require wisdom, discernment, and maturity so that we can navigate how to have these conversations with a clear understanding about what's right and what's wrong. And this is going to help us as we deal with our kids, but it's also going to help us deal with people and it's going to help us understand how God is dealing with us in our lives because sometimes God is going to employ some tough love to get us from where we are to where we need to be because he loves us too much to leave us in the state in which we're in. So we're going to start in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians in verse 1, and here's what we read. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done or who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you're truly, you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things we're going to talk about in relation to tough love. And the first is this, is that tough love doesn't feel loving in the moment. And every parent recognizes that, that it doesn't feel loving in the moment. If you've experienced it, it doesn't feel loving in the moment. Now, let's be honest. This passage is one of the stranger passages in the New Testament, and it's something most of us would rather not think about because it's gross, all right? In the church at Corinth, there was a guy having an affair with his stepmom, and we can just all let out the ew, really. And so now, and I don't know what's worse, the fact that the guy's having the affair the fact that the church doesn't think anything of it, or the fact that this was even beyond the pale in comparison to the pagan culture around them who wouldn't do something like that. Now, I know that as parents, we all like to ask our kids, like, so honey, what did you learn in church today? Let us pray that they don't ask us this same question when we head home. So mom, dad, what did you learn today? Well, we learned about how sometimes there's problems with blended families. That's kind of what we learned today. But Paul gives this really stern warning, and he says, look, you've got to put this guy out of the church and deliver him over to Satan. What in the world does that mean? Do we, like, drive him to the door of hell and drop him off? Uh, and, and so that's not what that means. But here's basically what it means. It means this. You're on your own. Like, the guy gets taken out of the church, and he's like, hey, man, you're on your own until things change. Now, when Paul describes believers in the book of Ephesians, which is another book in the New Testament if you're not aware, He talks about the armor of God, that there's pieces of armor like a Roman soldier would have, but he talks about one piece in particular, which he calls the shield of faith. Now, this isn't like a small shield, like Captain America's shield or something. This shield was huge. It was called a thurios in Greek. It was two and a half feet wide and four and a half feet tall. This shield was basically the size of a door. It was made of wood covered with metal and oiled leather. It was big enough for a soldier to hide behind, and also these shields were interlocking. So they could interlock together and they could all form this protective barrier and begin to take ground together. When you're part of God's house, right? When you're, when you're, when you're in the house, when you're part of a house, you, there is a protection 
that comes with being around other believers that you are locking shields with. And see, what happens is when you're out, you're on your own. And that's the thing that happens. He's like, look, if you're going to live this way and act this way, I mean, even people that aren't Christians are blushing by the things that you're doing. I mean, then we, we just can't, we can't have you in this. And so now why would Paul say this? Is it because he hates him? Is it because he's angry at him? No, it's because he loves him and he realizes and he wants this guy to wake up to the reality that the decisions that he is making are destroying him, his family, and everyone around him and are destroying the testimony of Jesus in this city. Now, because we live in 2021, we have to answer this question, and that is, some might say, yeah, but as Christians, don't we have to approve of every lifestyle choice that a person makes? Because, I mean, we don't want to be labeled as intolerant or haters, right? I mean, isn't this guy and his stepmom just like living out their truth? And isn't it okay if they love each other and they're not hurting anybody else? Um, so much to be said on that. But have you ever noticed that people who say we shouldn't be intolerant of other people's choices are very intolerant of the fact that we disagree with them? Isn't that kind of weird? That's a sermon for another time. Maybe next week. So wait and see. Uh, but the reality is this guy's choices were not just destroying his dad, not just destroying his stepmom and their marriage, not just destroying his family. The guy is destroying himself. You know why? Because there is no real future in these choices. And then Paul doesn't just, by the way, he's not just saying, well, I'm just decided that this is wrong. No, there's a spiritual principle behind the decision, which is what he talks about. He he explains the problem in verses one through five. And then in verses six, seven, and eight, he explains the spiritual principle behind it. And he talks about this idea of leaven. And then he talks about the idea of Jesus being our Passover, which is just a brilliant illustration of taking two separate things and then dovetailing them together. It's so brilliant. But throughout the Bible, if you're not aware, leaven is signifies influence. That's why when you, if you ever bake bread, you know that you only need a pinch of leaven, right? A pinch of yeast to make the bread rise. Why? Because it's a little bit, but it influences the entire loaf. Now, the way that it worked in the ancient world is that the way that you would leaven a new loaf is that you would take a pinch of bread from the old loaf and put it into that. And just that little bit of yeast from the old loaf would now cause the whole thing to be puffed up. And by the way, the reason why he says this, you guys should have been mourning, but instead you're puffed up. So he's kind of using the play on words to explain what should be happening. That, and the point that he's making is, is that the old loaf, the old life that we once lived, cannot, uh, we cannot allow it to influence the work of God that he's doing now, or it will derail us. And we understand that, right? Have you ever, if you've ever been on any kind of diet or eating plan, you know that. No one sets out and it's like, hey, I'm going to eat all the calories today. No, instead, it starts out with somebody eating a piece of cake. And they're like, do you want a bite? <laughs> well, maybe a bite. Yeah, but I'm eating well. And then if they're, if they're Hispanic, they're like, ay, pero un día. <laughs> un día has plunged so many people uh, throughout the course of their lives. And you're like, un día, one bite. Next thing you know, you've eaten a box of Twinkies. And you're like, you know, is it still within the 24-hour un dia thing. Now, so about three and a half years ago, I got, I got serious about my health and I, I decided to get healthy and I lost about 80 pounds. 2020 hit and thank you. And, uh, 2020 hit and 2020 gave me 20 and, uh, we're working, we're working through that, but I've, I've kept 60 of it off and, um, people were so kind. Now I've done this one other time in the last three and a half years and I hesitate to do this, but so 
I will briefly show you my before picture. All right, so this is the before picture. And um, relax. So, no, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. We can take that down now. We, we, don't, we don't want to see that guy. That guy's hungry. And uh, <laughs> truth be told, the hungry one is me. And uh, so now what's funny is, is that when I got down, I was, I was about maybe 20 pounds lighter than I am right now. Uh, and so people, most people were super encouraging. And then there were the people in church that took my wife aside and they were like, hey, um, can we ask you a question? Like, sure, what's up? Is Pastor Bob dying? Does he have cancer? And they're like, no, he just stopped eating cake. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's what happened. And so, and then once they found out, and by the way, this is the weirdest conversation ever to have with people where it's like, um, you know, like, oh, what can you tell me what you're doing? It's like a minute ago you thought I was dying and now you want to know my secret to a long life. And people are so weird. And, but here's the thing that, and here's the point that I'm making is that when you start living a different way, your taste buds actually change. So I had, I, I've had this conversation over the last few years with people. Most of my life, I could not taste lettuce. I didn't think lettuce tasted like anything. I just thought lettuce was a vehicle for whatever dressing I was using just to kind of sop up all the dressing. Because, you know, onions can't do what lettuce can do to kind of sop it up. And so, but now, listen, after a couple of years, like I totally taste the difference in lettuce. And now and there is a hierarchy of lettuce. I don't know if you knew that. And by the way, the greatest lettuce that God has given to us is called butter lettuce. If you haven't had butter lettuce, you need to make some decisions in your life. Butter lettuce is fantastic. And by the way, all the way on the bottom, iceberg. It is the worst. Don't believe me? Ask the Titanic. And so now, if you're Cuban like me, you had no idea that there was even another type of lettuce. You thought lettuce was that garbage that they're serving at Cuban restaurants. And, and, and by the way, what I love, listen, my, my parents were born in Cuba, came here. I was born here in the States. I love my family. And there are many wonderful things that Cubans have done. One thing Cubans have not done is perfect the salad. <laughs> Salads at a Cuban restaurant are the saddest thing you have ever seen. You order a salad at a Cuban restaurant and they are going to take a head of iceberg lettuce. They're going to put it on the same slicer where they are making medianoches and every other Cuban sandwich. And they're going to slice it up like it was in a paper shredder. Then they're going to put it on this little plate. They're going to give you one slice of lonely tomato and two little rings of an onion and then hand it to you. Here's your salad. Like, what in the world is this? So anyway, if you want a good salad... Don't go to La Carreta. That's all I'm saying to you because... And then you take a bite and you're like, why does it taste like ham? And it's because they use the same slicer. They didn't even bother cleaning it. And so now, but here's the point, right? When, when Paul says you got to decide a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump, you realize that that's what happens. It's like when I cut sugar out, I had to cut all the sugar out. I couldn't have like, oh, I'm going to have like one Coke. I'm like, no, I have one Coke. I'm having 20 because... I know nothing of, you know, like, can't you just be rational? I know nothing of being rational, right? So, uh, and it's just, it's just the way it is. Because you know what I found? There's a reason why it's called losing weight. You know why? It's like, oh, did you drop weight? We don't say drop weight. We say, did you lose weight? You know why? Because there's the possibility that it might find you. And when it finds you, it brings friends. 
and all of those friends are fat. So just an FYI. So now Paul is saying the same thing. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump and totally derails you. And then he says this, that Jesus is our Passover who was sacrificed for us. Now, Passover is celebrated in the Jewish calendar on the 14th of Nisan, and so, which just happened. Now, the day after Passover is the, another seven-day feast, which is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What would happen in Jewish families is that they would play this game where they would have to get all of the leaven out of their house before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So what they would do is they would get all, you know, getting all the crackers and cookies, getting all that out, and then they would take like a roll or a piece of bread and they would hide it somewhere in the house. And then the kids would have to try to find the last piece of leaven, get it out, whichever one found it, got some candy or something like that. And then the point was this, they would celebrate not just the Passover, but this feast of the next seven days and eat only eat unleavened bread to remember this, that our ancestors were saved from being slaves in Egypt. They had been slaves for 400 years. God saved them and they were no longer under the power of the Egyptians. Now, Paul says, Jesus is our Passover. He is the Passover lamb who was sacrificed on our behalf and he is the one who redeemed us. So now we're no longer under the power of sin, the power of this world. But to experience the power of that, the victory over that, we have to purge the leaven. And that's what he goes on in verse nine. Look at what he says. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous extortioners, idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I have written to you to not keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are outside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. If you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to tell you about tough love is that tough love exercises discernment for the future. I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. It's fairly clear, but just in case some of us went to public school, let's talk about it. All right. He's saying that we aren't Our job is not to judge people who aren't Christians for not acting Christian. And there is this thing that happens in the church at large where we have this problem with people who aren't Christian and we judge them for not acting like Christians. Now, let me just explain something. People who aren't Christians don't act like Christians. You know why? Because they aren't Christians. You and I, before we were Christians, we didn't act Christian. You know why? Because we weren't Christians. That's, in fact, how it works. But what he's saying is, those that claim to be believers and aren't, you've got to make some decisions about who you associate with or don't. And listen, this gets more challenging with each passing year for us to not allow the values of our culture to now cause us to compromise as it creeps into our lives. So what Paul says is, listen, he says, I've told you before, not to keep company, or literally it means not be mingled with. Those who call themselves Christians and are involved in all of these things. And he, he kind of gives this list of things that they shouldn't be involved in. Now, what he's talking about is, he, is that there's, we've got to be selective with the people that we hang out with, the friendships that we embrace. You know why? Because not everyone is healthy. 
And he gives this list of people to stay away from and people who engage in certain types of behavior. He talks about sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, where we get our English word pornography. He talks about covetous, where the driving force of their lives is an obsession with material things and wanting more. He talks about idolaters, that is, the people who claim to be Christians, but it's obvious that they are worshiping something else. A reviler, someone who slanders, a drunkard, I think that's self-explanatory, and an extortioner, the Greek word is harpax. It refers to a person who steals via violence. The point is this, that we choose our friends wisely because there is a saying that I believe to be the absolute truth, that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And the reality is, is that if they aren't walking with God, they are going to influence you on a path that you do not want to go. And the way it works is kind of like this. I, I, if you've been around Calvary for a while, you know this, that I, my, I grew up in Boston and lived there until I was about 14 and then moved here. And one of the things that we'll do every couple of years is that we'll fly up either for a vacation over the summer or around Thanksgiving to spend Thanksgiving with my family up there. And because my family is from Boston, they talk like someone from Boston. Like there are people that they're just, you know, you spend two minutes with them and they're like, you're from New England, aren't you? And, uh, and that's how it is. And so, but my wife does this and my wife is like the most charming person ever, but she just, this is just one of her charming things. And so, uh, but she will, by the end of a four day trip, she'll start dropping her R's and she'll start talking with a Boston accent, not even realizing it. And she'll be like, hey, Bob, can we park the car over at Harvard yet? And, uh, and uh, oh yeah, well, praise the Lord. And, uh, and so, anyway, but that's, and that's just the power of influence. And, and people ask me this all the time. Like, you grew up in Boston. You don't sound like it. I had a thick Boston accent when I moved here. And they're like, what happened? And I'm like, God healed me. That's what happened. <laughs> and uh, my family does not like that joke. And, uh, but we don't go to Boston and change the way that they speak. No, they start influencing us. And that is the danger of letting people that you shouldn't let speak into your life speak into your life. And that, by the way, this doesn't mean, and that's why Paul says, I didn't mean people that are like not believers. If you had to cut yourself off from every person, you'd have to leave the planet. So this isn't, the idea is not, I've got to become a hermit, cut myself off from every relationship from anybody who isn't like totally Christian. No, no, no. That's not a great strategy if you want to reach people. We have to build relationships with people who are far from God, because guess what? That's what someone did with us. And if everyone cut themselves off, we wouldn't be believers today. We'd still be lost. But what we're talking about is being wise in our friendships with the people that we receive counsel from and allow to speak into our lives. Paul, as we get a little further in 1 Corinthians, is going to say this in chapter 15. He says this, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And guess what? Deciding not to hang out with certain people is a tough decision. But listen, if you value your future, you have to make a wise choice and sometimes the tough choice. And then he goes on in chapter 6 and verse 1. He says this, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who is able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore... 
It is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against another. And why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing, and that is that tough love reveals wisdom in the present. Here's the thing that you need to know is that Greek society, I know that it was the Roman Empire, but the thing that you have to know is about 300 years before the Roman Empire came on the scene, Alexander the Great set out after his father Philip of Macedonia died. He took over the throne and he made the decision that he was going to spread Greek culture throughout the known world. He pretty much conquered the known world, died at the age of 33 in the city of Babylon. And then shortly after, the uh, Roman Empire rose up. But the Roman Empire spoke Greek. The culture was Greek. And Greek society was very litigious. They were obsessed with the legal system. They were obsessed with suing each other. They were obsessed with trials. When there were trials, I mean crowds of thousands would show up to witness a trial. You think Judge Judy is popular now. She would have been filling stadiums back then. I mean, it was was huge. And so in that culture, juries numbered in the hundreds. Now we struggle to find 12 semi-sane people. But back then, I mean, people were clamoring to get picked. Now, I feel like Broward County, they, of all the people that live here, they only have my number because I get called for jury duty all the time. I never get picked. I just rot in that jury pool all day until they send me home. But, uh, and because what happens is once I get selected, like, okay, you, these numbers, you get selected, the minute the, the uh, defense attorney finds out that I'm a pastor, he sends me packing. And uh, I got to go back to the jury pool where they're obsessed with playing movies that star Sandra Bullock. And uh, what is the deal? I, every time I go, next we'll be showing The Blind Side starring Sandra Bullock. And then that movie ends and it's like, next we'll be showing Miss Congeniality starring Sandra. It's like, buy some new movies! And so anyway, so uh, several years ago, I get called to be part of a jury. And this was a jury that was only six people in an alternate. So there's about 12 to 15 of us. And so now they're narrowing it down. And then people, you know, people say the craziest things to get out of, jury duty. And the lady that was in the group, she's a couple people over from me. uh, They say, is there anybody that has a problem that they can't serve on the jury that we think will be done today, but at the most would be done, you know, tomorrow or the next day. This lady says, I'm sorry, I I can't serve as a juror because I'm getting divorced tomorrow. And the judge says, well, do you have an appointment for that? She says, no, I just thought tomorrow would be a really good day to get divorced. (laughs) And I thought like, wow, that's real commitment. You know, like, your honor, I will end my marriage if it means I can get out of jury duty. Like the lady gets home and her husband's like, honey, how'd it go? She's like, well, I got good news and bad news. And uh, so anyway, (laughs) Paul is telling these believers that they have to stop suing each other and taking each other to court. And he says, this is why, because as Christians, we should not be going to a secular court to come to terms agreeably between believers. I mean, it's just so embarrassing. The church should be the place where we deal with our business. Because by the way, and this is what his, and by the way, this isn't just like, well, I just kind of thought that would be a good idea. Paul always has a theological basis as to why he gives these commands to the Corinthians. And he says, and here's why he says, because the church is more qualified to deal with things going on in the church. And here's why he says, because the church is going to judge angels at some point in the future. You know, when Lucifer rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him. 
All of those angels that were part of that rebellion will be judged by the Lord at some point in time in the future. And here's what the Bible says. They'll be judged by the Lord and by us. And let me read two verses to you out of the book of Revelation that show us that. The first is in Revelation 20. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked him and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Who's sitting on those thrones? Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 3. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And here's the point that Paul makes. If we are at some point going to judge angels, isn't there someone in the church that's wise enough to handle these minor disputes in comparison? And by the way, this is why you've got to deal with stuff like this on the front end. You decide, hey, we're, gonna, we're believers, we're going to start a business together. Okay, fine. Decide on the front end what happens if there is some kind of dispute. You write an agreement that says, here's what's going to happen. This is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And these are the consequences if we do not meet those expectations. But the problem is, is that in the beginning, we don't. there's so much excitement. No, man, we're all going to work it out, man. It's going to all be good. Don't worry, bro. It's going to be fine. And then you know what we find later on is that sometimes even people who love Jesus disagree about things. And that's why I have told people this many, many times, that agreements prevent disagreements. Don't just say we get it. You write it on paper. This is what I'm agreeing to. This is what you are agreeing to. And we are agreeing to what the consequences are if either of us fails to do it. And I am grateful that in the church, there's so many Christian attorneys that are willing to do mediation uh, in conjunction with a local church. And then Paul says, but what happens if one of them, one of the people in the party says, well, I don't want to go to mediation. And the only way to get justice is to go to court. Paul says this, allow yourself to be wronged. If you say, if it's court or nothing, take nothing. And this is why we should be slow to forming partnerships with people whose character we cannot vouch for. Because it might end up biting you later. Because more than getting what you think you deserve is the name of Jesus being honored. And sinning in plain sight for the, the unbelieving world to see, listen, is a terrible thing. And listen, I really don't believe that anybody who loves Jesus, really wants to tarnish the name of Jesus. But that's why you've got to decide beforehand that worst case scenario, I'm going to take the loss. And that as a believer, you'd rather be cheated and then take another Christian to court to parade your differences to a host of unbelievers. Well, what if it's between a believer and an unbeliever? Well, then you don't have that same, this rule doesn't apply. But Paul is going to tell us in 2 Corinthians that Christians should not be in business with non-Christians because eventually competing worldviews collide. And that's the thing that Paul is trying to get us to see. Of all the scenarios that he's bringing up, here's the theme of what he's saying. That we, those of us who know Jesus and those who don't, we see the world differently. We have a totally different perspective. We have a totally different worldview. And so Paul has been, in each point, Paul is bringing up these issues to show us that, listen, Christians should be living differently than everybody else. We should be living differently when it comes to the way we handle business. We should be handling relationships differently. We should be handling problems differently. Because if we're Christians 
And there's nothing different between us and this world. We're doing something wrong because there should be a stark contrast between us and the unbelieving world. And you want to know the truth? The people who don't believe want us to be different because they really want to know. They really want to believe that life with Jesus will really change us. Change us on the macro level and change us at the cellular level as well, even to the most basic decisions of how we conduct ourselves. Because if we want them to believe, they need to know that we believe to the point where we are actually living differently. And that is the greatest sermon that we will ever preach, that the way that we live differently than everybody else. And you know what happens after a season? The people who thought we were crazy eventually come around again and ask us how they can be more like us. And we're able to point them to the one that does all the changing, the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that truth, that reality, for that challenge that we, Lord, live differently than the world around us. God, that we would be people who are filled with joy and that the world around us that is confused, that's suffering, that they would experience what it is to know you, the freedom from guilt, shame, the burdens, and instead, Lord, have life and peace, a future and a hope. God, that's our prayer. Help us to live in such a way that we lead others to know you. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.